The Senate will return today and stay in session through Thursday. The House will return tomorrow and stay in session through Friday. This week in the House, as I said, they'll come back tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider 27 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House will take up one more bill under suspension of the rules. Then on Thursday and Friday, the House will consider three bills. H.R. 2499, the Federal Firefighters Fairness Act of 2022, H.R. 903, the Rights for the TSA Workforce Act of 2022, and H.R. 5129, the Community Services Block Grant Modernization Act of 2022. In addition, at some point during the week, the House will also take up a resolution recognizing congressional workers' rights to organize into unions. Last week in the Senate, they came back to work on Monday and they voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Joshua Frost to be Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Elizabeth de Leon Bargava to be an Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Then the Senate took up SJ Res 39. That's a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of Health and Human Services relating to vaccine and mass requirements to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in Head Start programs. That interim final rule, quote, requires effective upon publication, universal masking for individuals over two years of age and older with some noted exceptions, and all Head Start staff contractors whose activities involve contact with or providing direct services to children and families and volunteers working in classrooms or directly with children to be vaccinated for COVID-19 by January 11, 2022. The resolution of disapproval passed the Senate by a vote of 55 to 41 with Democrats Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Ossoff of Georgia, Jackie Rosen of Nevada, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, and John Tester of Montana crossing party lines to vote with the Republicans to kill that rule. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House engaged in a, I'm sorry, the Senate engaged in a mini voterama of sorts as it considered 28 motions to instruct conferees on the China competitiveness bill. If you want to read all 28 descriptions of all 28 motions to instruct the conferees, you can find that in this week's Washington Report, which will be posted online shortly after this broadcast. Uh, I'm going to read to you two of those motions to instruct. First, passed 86 to 12. 86 to 12. That's about as strong a bipartisan vote as you can get, and that's one of the reasons I want to read this to you. A motion to instruct offered by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Terrorism-related sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps are necessary to limit major areas of diplomatic, energy, infrastructure, banking, financial, economic, military, and space cooperation between the People's Republic of China and the Islamic Republic of Iran, and it instructs conferees to insist on the inclusion of Section 3258 of the Senate Amendment, which requires a report and a brief identifying such areas of cooperation. So that is the first motion to instruct we're paying attention to. By a vote of 86 to 12, the Senate wants included in the final version of the China Competitiveness Bill Conference Report uh, a section of the Senate version that wants to know more about uh, cooperation between the People's Republic of China and the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
Second one, also passed with a strong bipartisan vote, not quite as strong as 86 to 12. This one passed 66 to 23. A motion to instruct offered by Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford. Any nuclear deal with Iran must also address the Iranians' ballistic missile program, their support for terrorism, and oil exports to China. It also includes language opposing sanctions relief for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or revoking the IRGC's foreign terrorist organization status. So two of the 28 motions to instruct were strong bipartisan votes to tell the Biden administration, lay off a deal with Iran, in other words, back off on your deal with Iran. Later on Thursday, the Senate voted by voice vote to confirm the following people to the following positions. James D. Rodriguez to be Assistant Secretary for Veterans Employment and Training at the Department of Labor. Dr. John Ng Nkengasong to be U.S. Ambassador at Large and Coordinator of U.S. Government Activities to Combat HIV AIDS Globally. Mark B. Nathanson to be U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Norway. Mary Kay Loss Carlson to be U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of the Philippines. Philip S. Goldberg to be U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. And Carolyn Kennedy to be U.S. Ambassador to the Commonwealth of Australia. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Anne Claire Phillips to be administrator of the Maritime Administration. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will take up the nomination of Asmaret Asafu Berhe to be director of the Office of Science at the Department of Energy. On Monday, Majority Leader Schumer will file cloture on S-4132, the so-called Women's Health Protection Act. That's a bill that codifies the language of Roe v. Wade into federal law. The cloture motion will ripen on Wednesday, and the Senate will vote on it then. The last time the Senate voted on the Women's Health Protection Act on February 28, the motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed failed by a vote of 46 to 48, with three Republicans and three Democrats not voting, and one Democrat, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, crossing party lines to vote with the Republicans, while all the Republicans who voted, including Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa, Collins, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, voting against cloture. I have no reason to believe the outcome of Wednesday's vote will be significantly different. Now to something we haven't discussed yet, uh, insurrection disqualification. Ever since the Capitol riot on January 6th of last year, left-wing extremists have been trying to use that event as a pretext to disqualify certain Republican members of the House of Representatives from running for re-election on the grounds that they violated the strictures of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which reads, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, end quote. They have focused their efforts on four Republican members of the House, Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, North Carolina's Madison Cawthorn, and Arizona's Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar. 
A North Carolina judge blocked the attempt to kick Cawthorn off the ballot in March. A Maricopa County Superior Court judge dismissed the complaints against Biggs and Gosar last month, saying the plaintiffs did not have standing for their legal challenge. On Friday of last week, Georgia Administrative State Law, I'm sorry, Georgia State Administrative Law Judge Charles Boudreau ruled that Green could run for re-election, rejecting arguments from a group of five Georgia voters who said she had engaged in insurrection. The final decision will be made by Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Now to that Iran nuclear deal we were just talking about. On Wednesday, the Senate took a bipartisan shot at the, at the Biden administration's attempt to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. During that mini votorama I spoke of earlier, the Senate took up a motion to instruct conferees that was authored by Oklahoma Republican Senator James Langford that said any nuclear agreement with Iran must address Iran's support for terrorism and that the United States should leave in place its sanctions against the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. The vote on that motion to instruct was 62 to 33. This was the first time that the 117th Congress has gone on record with a recorded vote related to the possibility of a revived nuclear deal with Iran. And it demonstrates pretty clearly that the Senate does not want such a deal to be simply a revival of the 2015 deal. This Senate wants any deal with Iran to address Iran's support for terrorism, a subject that was left out of the 2015 deal. And this Senate wants to keep the IRGC designated as a foreign terrorist organization because it is one. That last point about maintaining the IRGC's designation as a foreign terrorist organization has become the key sticking point preventing the conclusion of negotiations on the deal. According to Politico, the 27-page agreement is, quote, virtually ready to go. But Iran is adamant that the U.S. government removed the terrorist designation from the IRGC and will not agree to sign the document and come back inside the terms of the revived deal until and unless the IRGC is removed from that list first. Given that the U.S. government is aware that foreign, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is on a hit list sanctioned by the IRGC, the U.S. government refuses to do so. Now to Russia and Ukraine. On Wednesday of last week, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen called on the 27-nation group to ban oil imports from Russia and said Russia's largest bank should be disconnected from the SWIFT bank payment system. Speaking to the European Parliament in Strasbourg, France, von der Linden urged the member nations to wean themselves off imports of crude oil within six months and said they should cut off imports of refined products from Russia by the end of the year. In recent weeks, U.S. intelligence shared with Ukrainian military forces has been used to target Russian generals on the front lines and the Moskva, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. How do we know that? Because U.S. sources have leaked that information to the media. Whenever we read stories that could only have appeared as the result of a leak, we're left asking ourselves, was that leak approved by decision makers as part of a larger strategy? Or was it leaked for lesser reasons by somebody who wasn't following the plan? That is, there are times when we want to help and we want to be known as having helped. And then there are other times when we want to help, but we would prefer to remain silent about that help. As the Russian war on Ukraine has evolved over the last several weeks, so has the nature of the assistance we have provided Ukraine. At first, U.S. policymakers apparently believed it would not take Russia long to break Ukraine's will to resist. And 
Consequently, the assistance we gave Ukraine seemed to be just enough to ward off complaints that we weren't doing anything to help, but not enough to actually help the Ukrainians win. Then the Ukrainians refused to capitulate and began to impress Western intelligence and military forces, and the nature of the assistance we gave them began to change. We began to give them more significant assistance, and they began to put it to better use. It turns out the leaks to the media about the extent of the help we've given Ukraine have not been planned. At least that's what the Biden administration national security team wants us to believe. And how do we know? Because they've leaked to their favorite reporters and columnists the news that President Biden is unhappy with the leaks about the help we've given Ukraine. Biden, we are told, is concerned that Russian dictator Vladimir Putin may not take kindly to being forced to read about his military's humiliation at the hands of the Ukrainians working with help from the Americans. Biden is said to be fearful that if it begins too much to look like the U.S. is viewing this engagement as a proxy war, Putin might decide to escalate against U.S. targets. And now, finally, to the leak of the Dobbs draft ruling. On Monday evening of last week, Politico reported that based on a February 10 draft ruling, a majority of the members of the Supreme Court were prepared to overturn the 49-year-old Roe v. Wade decision that struck down state laws prohibiting abortion. This was an unprecedented act. Since the Supreme Court issued its first opinion in 1791, no draft ruling had ever leaked before the final decision was handed down. There's a lot to unpack here. I've got several observations. First, let's be absolutely clear on one thing up front. If the Roe ruling is overturned, that does not mean that abortion is automatically outlawed throughout the land. Oddly, though it is the case that the Roe ruling made abortion legal throughout the land, it is not the case that striking down that ruling translates into outlawing abortion on a nationwide basis. That's because when Roe was originally issued, many states had already passed laws making abortion legal. So if the Roe ruling is overturned, then we would return the question of abortion legislation to the states and more specifically to the state legislatures where the people's elected representatives will make determinations as to what they believe the law should be in their respective states. In other words, the democratic process, which is where this matter should have been decided for the last half century. Some states are going to outlaw abortion entirely. Other states are going to outlaw the outlawing of abortion and leave even late-term abortion legal. And many states are going to find ways to leave abortion legal, but greatly restricted. Second, the reaction of the leadership of the two political parties to news of the leaked draft was decidedly different. While leaders of both parties claimed to be outraged, they said they were outraged for very different reasons. Democrats said they were outraged at the prospect of having that 49-year-old ruling overturned. Republicans said they were outraged at the fact that someone had leaked a draft ruling in what most Republicans believed was an attempt by a supporter of abortion to pressure one of the five justices to change his or her mind and vote instead to keep Roe in place. Were Democrat leaders really outraged? I'm not convinced. Based on their actions, it's at least arguable that they were merely feigning outrage and that, in fact, they were secretly overjoyed at the prospect of having any issue, any issue they could use to whip up their party's base in anticipation of the upcoming midterm elections. Republican leaders, on the other hand, certainly seemed to be deeply upset by the leak. 
They know that the simple fact that a draft ruling leaked once means that it'll be easier to leak a second draft ruling and then a third. It doesn't require a genius IQ to be able to see how a loss of trust among the members of the Supreme Court could damage the court's ability to do its job. The framers of the Constitution very much wanted for the third branch of government, the judiciary, to be independent from political considerations. That's why federal judges do not run for election, and that's why they serve an unlimited life term of office, only leaving office on death, resignation, or impeachment. They are deliberately meant to be insulated from political considerations so they can focus on making the right legal decisions. The leak has already had an effect on our politics. Within days of the leak, a new activist group on the left calling itself Ruth Sent Us, after the departed liberal icon, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, announced it was going to host protests at the homes of the six Republican-appointed justices in an attempt to pressure them. This happens to be a federal crime. It's a form of obstruction of justice. 18 U.S. Code paragraph 1507 makes it a federal crime to picket or parade near a justice's home with the intent of influencing any judge in the discharge of his duty. Oddly, I didn't hear anything about anyone getting arrested for these protests. Of course, they weren't the only ones breaking the law. The leaker himself or herself broke the law. Contrary to what you may have heard on MSNBC, that because a draft Supreme Court ruling is not classified information, there was no crime committed by the leaker. The truth is different, writes former assistant U.S. attorney Andy McCarthy in National Review, quote, the theft, embezzlement, or conversion to one's own private use of government records is a crime, regardless of whether the information is classified. Further, he explains, the corrupt act of leaking a draft opinion with the patent intent to intimidate the justices and influence the outcome of the proceeding is an obstruction of justice. Now, let's talk a moment about the intent of the leaker. The only thing that makes sense in terms of motivation is that the leaker was seeking to influence the outcome of the ruling. The question is, was the leaker a pro-Roe activist trying to sway one of the five justices ready to overturn Roe and bring that justice back into the pro-Roe fold? Or was the leaker an anti-Roe activist, fearful one of the five justices was looking wobbly and the leak was intended to lock in all five votes? I find the latter possibility ludicrous. As we've witnessed in Supreme Court confirmation battles for the last 35 years, going back to the Bork nomination fight in 1987, one side has shown that it is willing to break all norms in pursuit of its agenda. One side is willing to slander judicial nominees. One side is willing to accuse nominees it, it, it opposes of the most heinous crimes. One side is willing to upend tradition and only one side. And it's not the conservative side. The leak of this document could only have come from someone on the left, someone so committed to a radical judicial agenda that he or she was willing to destroy the Supreme Court's independence in order to maintain in place what even legal scholars on the left consider a terrible ruling. Chief Justice Roberts immediately ordered the marshal of the Supreme Court to initiate an investigation into the source of the leak. This is not a job for the FBI or even the Capitol Police. Those two law enforcement authorities work for different branches of the federal government. I think it highly unlikely that the leader of the judicial branch is going to allow peace, police who work for the executive branch or the Congress 
to conduct an investigation that may require checking email and phone records of individuals who work for the Supreme Court. He may at some point ask for help, but if that happens, I'm quite sure it would happen only under the strictest scrutiny possible. So what will be the political effect of the leak? Well, one of two things is true. Either the Supreme Court will release a final ruling in this case that cues to the draft and overturns Roe v. Wade, or it will not. In terms of the political effect, leaking a draft opinion six or seven weeks before the final ruling would have been released anyway doesn't really change much, as long as that draft opinion doesn't change before it becomes the final opinion. Those who think the world will come to an end if Roe is overturned will still think that. They'll just start thinking that six or seven weeks earlier than they would have started thinking that otherwise. There's more to discuss, much more to discuss. For instance, how this leak of the draft ruling has energized congressional democratic efforts to pack the court. We'll save that discussion for next week. And that's our Washington Report for this week.